Welcome to Times Like These, the American Purpose podcast about current events and current ideas and the search for a new political center. I'm your host, Charles Lane of The Washington Post. Our guest today is Governor Chris Sununu. He is the 82nd governor of the state of New Hampshire. He was first elected to that office in 2016, and he's been reelected every two years since then, and he's running for reelection again this year in November 2022. Uh, you could say that Chris Sununu is someone who, after graduating as an engineer from MIT, went into the family business, which is politics in the state of New Hampshire. His father, John Sununu, was governor himself, later White House chief of staff in the George H.W. Bush administration. And his brother, also named John, was a congressman and senator from New Hampshire. And of course, as those names uh, indicate, Chris uh, is a Republican, just like all the other elected officials in his family. And yet within that category, one of the harder politicians on the scene today to really categorize in terms of partisanship or ideology. He really occupies kind of a unique niche uh, within the GOP. Chris Sununu is someone who had endorsed Donald Trump for re-election in 2020, but really repudiated his uh, false claims, that is Donald Trump's false claims, that the election in 2020 were stolen. Chris Sununu very famously a little while ago at the Gridiron Dinner in Washington poked some fun at the former president in ribald terms at that uh, Washington insider occasion, but also made clear in a subsequent interview uh, with MSNBC that he's, quote, not anti-anything. So he has walked kind of a fine line within his party and uh, to the point where Politico magazine has described him as, quote, a thorn in the former president's side he's been unable to remove. Whatever it is that Chris Sununu is doing in politics, though, you have to say it's popular in his state, where going into this election year, he is uh, touting a 62% approval rating among voters in New Hampshire. Uh, that's 86%, importantly, among Republicans. Those are enviable numbers uh, for anybody running for re-election, and they reflect a record that generally has been, like you'd expect from the state of New Hampshire, kind of libertarian at some places. He calls himself pro-choice on abortion. He's worked to enhance treatment options for people who are suffering from addiction to opioids, but he's also cut taxes, which is a very traditional Republican rem remedy. So with that, I'd like to welcome you, Governor Sununu, to times like these. And to say that this is the kind of person uh, we thought it would be especially interesting to discuss the prospects for the American political future. Well, thank you, Chuck. That was what, quite an intro. I got to hang out with a little more. That was that was great. And, and thanks for having me on. I was happy to. I like that you got uh, hard to characterize. I don't know if that's intentional or not, but I guess <laughs> that could be true. I don't know. Governor is someone who has uh, occupied this kind of unique, neither right nor left uh, position in politics. How do you view the prospects for restoring some measure of consensus and blunt polarization in this idea? How can that be brought about? So it, it, it's going to be brought about. The good news is I'm, I'm very much an optimist. I think 80% of the country is where most of us are. Not that we're Republican or Democrat only, but uh, we're, we don't represent the extremes. 
we've all kind of handed the microphones over to the extremes and let them have their say, but they don't represent the majority of Americans, whether you're Republican or Democrat. So I think as you get further away from 2020, as we get further away from COVID, I'm not saying time heals all wounds, but time definitely gets us back to uh, a more of a rational place. I think Washington had a great opportunity in this past year to show bipartisanship, to come together on some significant issues and, and show the country that, you know, good government can work. There is such a thing as opposed to just driving on a political agenda. And unfortunately, Washington hasn't really done it. I think governors have, to be a little blunt about it, on both sides of the aisle, not just Republican, but Democrat governors too. We were the ones that kind of had to take the lead uh, during COVID, if you remember. And, and we were given a lot of authority and responsibility to manage our states. And I think, by and large, most states in this country did, did very, very well. So I think there, what I try to do is just instill a, a sense of hope. And, and my biggest fear is that you have good potential leaders that don't want to run for office, that don't want to get involved in the political sphere or public service because it is so negative. So I try to really go out and talk and hopefully inspire folks to step up on, on either side. So I think, you know, on, on, on my side of the aisle, I, I, you know, I, I do classify myself as more of the rational conservative base of the party. Uh, I think there is a Democrat base of the party. It doesn't mean we're extreme right or extreme left, and, and we don't necessarily represent those extremes. But that's where most America is. And so ultimately, I think if, if leadership can, uh, some folks in, in leadership positions can step up and, and show that and be accountable to that, I think there is a real place for things getting back to normal as we come out of COVID and, and get further, further away from um, the divisiveness of 2020. Well, you know, that is a hopeful uh, picture which I'd sort of like to challenge in the following way. You know, we're, we're, as we're talking today, we're a couple of days out from the results of the uh, Republican primary in Ohio, where it's like all the candidates were competing to uh, go as, as far toward the, what uh, the winner, J.D. Vance, called the America First agenda as possible. And, and what, it, what it said to me about the atmosphere of politics now is that voters actually are they're sort of expressing themselves when they vote. They're sort of telling you where they stand on big ideological questions. And there isn't, it seems like, a great deal of pragmatism in how they vote. They seem, they actually really do seem interested in ideology as opposed to policy, discrete policy questions. I would challenge you back and say, well, if you look at 2020, I think the Democrat Party and then America said, well, we want the at the time, Joe Biden was considered the most moderate of the Democrats, right? Um, and I think given his experience in the U.S. Senate, his experience working with both parties, I think I'll come November, that's what folks were really voting for. They were, they were trying to get away from the extremism uh, when it came to the general election. Now, unfortunately, we didn't really get it. I don't think we got it uh, out of the Biden administration. I think he's, uh, I think he has let a lot of the uh, power hole within the White House drive a lot of a, a very uh, aggressive agenda on one side. And, and unfortunately, the Republicans uh, nationally have tried to respond to extremism with extremism, and that is never the right answer. But I think America, that's what they were voting for uh, in November of 2020. They were voting for the candidate they saw as being the most able to reach across the aisle on one side or the other. And I think, unfortunately, I think they, they may have seen uh, former President Trump as being too polarizing. Uh, he, Joe Biden was the less polarizing, less if threatening candidate, if you will, in terms of a, of a political uh, aspect. 
That's why uh, uh, Biden won. I don't think we've seen that play out, but I think that that's where America was going. And that's why I know as, even as we get further and further away from 2020, I think that's where we'll continue to go. Now, where the bases of each party go and who they continue to elect to represent them in those general elections, that's a different story. That's where you, I think you are 100% right. So I'd like to ask you uh, to kind of connect something that's going on in, in international affairs with what you're seeing in politics in your area and maybe around this country, which is the war in Ukraine. And, you know, it has been said, I think correctly, that common international foes have a unifying effect on American politics uh, as between the parties over the years. Is that an element? Is the relative consensus about the need to stop Russia in Ukraine? Are you feeling that that's something that's pulling Americans back together? Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt, there's something that virtually all of us have really galvanized and unified around because it is a threat of freedom. It is, I think what it made a lot of folks stop and, and take a breath. You had ultra conservatives saying, you know, there was too many shutdowns and, there were, you know, America's becoming too tyrannical and all of this. You had folks on the left hand side, the whether it's the Antifas or whatever you want to call it on the ultra, ultra left you know, saying again that, you know, America, you can't trust police and, you know, America is too authoritarian and all of this. And then the war breaks out and everyone goes, oh, wait, that's what authoritarianism really looks like. In both sides, both domestically and in, in a foreign sense, I think it's been very unifying for America. And it's also been a reminder that the world wants a strong America. The world does not want America to be sheepish, sheepish apologists, right? They want us to be strong. They want us to live up to our commitments. Not that we, we need to be the police officers of the world, but we need to, to stand, stand strong and show support, uh, not just with words, but with actions behind it as well. Um, it's a reminder that we have friends in this world and we have enemies in this world. In many ways, I think that has been, uh, been very galvanizing for us and a reminder that you always need long-term strategies and you need to, again, be, use the strength that we have uh, not just to be the strongest guy on the block, but to use it for good. It sounds like you, you're implying that you rate the current administration's response pretty well. Yes, I do. No, I, I think they have handled it. It's a very delicate situation. We, we, nobody, I don't think many people want to see us just jump American troops in there and put them at risk. That's, nobody really wants to see that. But you have to be supportive financially or with assistance and weaponry, whatever it might be. I think the idea of Europe cutting off, uh, you know, really putting a, a squeeze on Russia's natural gas is the absolute right thing to do. These guys are basically the gas station um, of the world, right? And so putting a, if you want to really squeeze them, you have to be willing to take some short-term hits. And I think that's what Europe is, is strongly considering at this point. Um, you know, when we stopped, you know, taking Russian oil, uh, you, that, that doesn't mean you turn to other dictators of the world, by the way, and start asking them for oil, for more oil uh, and, yeah. and natural resources. And, and again, you know, I think there's a responsible way to transition from uh, energy production uh, with fossil fuels and all that to uh, more renewable energy. There's a smart and responsible way to do it. They tried to just kind of do an executive order, but that had re massive reverberations in the energy markets well before uh, Putin walked into Ukraine. And now it's just being, you know, exponentially felt. And it's real. It's real for a lot of families that have to put a gallon of gas in the car or a trucker that is driving his truck from Arkansas to New Hampshire. Uh, it's now costing him another 1500 bucks in, in gasoline just to do that same trip. And he's thinking, well, maybe I'm not going to do that this time. Right. And so it has real worldwide and domestic supply chain issue. Um, and, and the fact that families are feeling it. Policy matters, you know. It really does. It's not. We, we're 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 in a tough spot. I think we're going to be in yes. a tough spot for the next 12, 18 months. But uh, nothing we can't come back from. We are America, after all. 
Uh, I wanted to follow up on that by asking what you're hearing sort of at the grassroots level in your state, because, you know, people may be galvanized and may feel good about uh, pitching in to support Ukraine, but it is it isn't free. It is it is going to have a downside to it and the higher prices that you talked about and other things. What can you tell us maybe an anecdote about how people in New Hampshire have uh, have responded? So the number one thing I hear all the time is how can we help? Right. Very early on. You know, how can we help? How do we do? Mm -hmm. You know, people want to do everything from blood drives to food drives to sending blankets and, and equipment. I had a, um, a company here that makes camping equipment and sleeping bags and tents and camping. They wanted to, you know, donate all this, all these supplies over uh, to the refugees coming out of uh, coming out of Ukraine. How can we do that? And, you know, can people would come up and say, can't you just send one of your National Guard planes? And I wish it were that easy. That would technically be an act of war to yeah. fly one of our National Guard planes into a war zone. but. New Hampshire does not want to go to war with Russia. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. Not not right now. Um, and, and hopefully not in the future. But but no, we we want to help. And and again, we, we've just been very fortunate economically. People want to give. So what, one of the things I had to do was quickly say, OK, you have Red Cross, UNICEF, some key organizations. They already have built-in inroads to Poland and where a lot of the refugees are coming. And that's where you should you know, dedicate your efforts because that's where you know you're going to get not just the best value, but you know that your efforts are going to get to where they are. We didn't want a situation where, you know, we saw in Puerto Rico where people had donated materials and they were sitting on docks for, for months and months and months and all that. You wanted to get help, people that were offering help to make sure it was going to the families that needed it. So in that respect, I think that's the number one, those are the stories we hear most often. How else can we help? Now, if, uh, you know, we talk about bringing refugees over here, uh, we're very open to having our refugees or, or mm -hmm. political refugees that want to come in. Most women and children who might have gone to Poland, they actually want to go back to Ukraine because their husbands, brothers, right. and fathers are there, and they want to have those families reunite. And they believe in the government of Ukraine. They believe they're going to win the war, which is the right thing. And so they're not desperate to come over to the United States long term. So while we've opened ourselves up, I don't believe we've seen any influx. I talk to the State Department about once a month about, gee, are the Ukrainian refugees, are they coming? And they keep saying, no, not really. There's not a huge demand right now to bring them over. But if, if that opportunity were to be there, we'd be very supportive of it as well. And again, to bring them into a, a state that is doing very well economically, that we, we can create opportunity for them, you know, right off the bat, that would be, ter you know, terrific. So uh, the other big thing that's in the news as we're talking is the leak of a uh proposed uh, majority opinion of the Supreme Court that would overrule the landmark 1973 abortion rights case, Roe versus Wade. Talk about that, number one, but also about your perception of how this issue will play out in the coming months. In terms of this theme we're talking about, things that divide America and things that unite America, it would seem that this is one that is going to push us apart again. Yeah, look, unfortunately, without a doubt. So I'm pro-choice. Um, you know, uh, like most folks in, in the pro-choice realm, I support a late, you know, the idea of, of banning abortion, you know, in those late term months, seven, eight, nine, I think virtually every state in the country has that now. Um, and, and I passed that bill and, or, and, and signed that bill into law. I had no problem with that. But you also want to make sure there's flexibility in there. I mean, we're a fairly secular state in New Hampshire. We're the live free or die state. And we want to make sure we support our women's rights to, to have that choice. It's, it's really just that simple. Now, obviously, this is going to be a, it is a very hot button issue today. I think it will remain a fairly 
uh, strong hot button political issue all the way until November of 22. Not sure where they where they're going to go nationally. I can tell you what, regardless of what happens nationally here in New Hampshire, you know, w- women are going to have the right to choose and a pro-choice governor and a pro-choice state, and we're going to stay that way. So, going forward, though, you know, does it overwhelm? The issues of inflation, the issues of putting gas in your car, which are not definitely not going away. I don't think so. I think at the end of the day, the key issues are still going to be about the impending recession, inflation, the high cost of living, the supply chain issues, um, the fact that you can't get a, a, a bundle of carrots you know, for the same price you used to, or milk or whatever it might be. These are still basic needs. And at the root of it, I think if those things aren't aren't settled, if you will, back to normal, uh, and I put that in air quotes, um, which I don't think they will be, there's no doubt we're in sort of some type of recession, right? You can't have inflation at 6 7% uh, and, and not have interest rates skyrocket and probably outpace those at some point. So I think in, inflationary yeah. rates are going to still stay high at 6 7 8%. That's going to be very real. It's going to bring the housing market to a bit of a grind. Even though it's hot right now, it could come to a very quick halt uh, until things really start settling. Social issues are important, but kitchen table issues at the end of the day, when they're serious, uh, will will drive the vote voters and turnout and, and really be the driving political force in November. Well, I do want to sort of drill down, though, for a moment on the big picture impact on democracy of a decision like this, mm. which, of course, we don't know 100 percent what it will be. But assuming they overturn Roe, do you have confidence that our system, as it's currently working, is going to be able to work through that tough issue, legislature by state legislature? Yes. Um, I don't, don't think the results are going to make everybody happy. I think there's still going to be a lot of fire on both sides. But at the end of the day, that's that's fine. There's Voters will still have a say where those issues go. It's not being authoritarian by any means. It's not the court isn't saying thou shalt, you know, uh, you know, do this or do that. They're simply saying um, this is a rights issue and, and it's going to be returned to the states. I think some states will be extreme on it on both sides. Some states will be very conservative about it. Some states will be very uh, liberal about it. You know, New Hampshire, I think, like I said before, tends to be we are a pro-choice state. I think we're going to stay a pro-choice state. Uh, that's clearly where the voters want to go. And that's that's where I am. But, um, you know, I don't think I don't think it's fair to say it's a threat to democracy. Um, it's a threat to the issue. How do you as a Republican who's not pro-Trump and who's not anti-Trump see the future of your party and your own personal career in that context? I'm a big believer that whether you're on the, the town planning board or you're the governor or the president, you got to be who you are, right? You just got to call balls and strikes like you see them. And I, I think if everyone just took a bit of a breath and said, I, stop overthinking the politics of my answer, stop overthinking the politics of this endorsement and that and whatever, just be you and be true to yourself. And folks might not agree with you on every issue, but being genuine and authentic has become a rarity in the political realm. And I, I can't tell you, I, that's my biggest message. And I think if everyone just takes a breath, stops overthinking it, and just remembers why they got in. I didn't get into this thing for me, right? I got a private, I had a private business and I got my family. I'm putting my family through a lot of public scrutiny that they don't want and never asked for. And if I'm going to do that, well, I'm darn well going to get something done. I'm going to be authentic about it. And these are the ABCs of me. You take me or you leave me. That's fine. And, and if, you, if you hear what I'm about and you like my approach, 
That's great. I hope you vote for me. And if you don't, that's fine too. Don't vote for me. Vote for the other guy. That's that's fine. But just, I think people just need to be authentic and genuine. And if we all get back there, then slowly those microphones are going to get taken away from the extremes. It's not going to just be about the yelling on social media or, you know, one media extreme on the left versus another media extreme on the right. It's really slowly going to come back to the center because as people are more genuine, that's what America wants. They don't want the extremism. Uh, and we kind of have to have the courage to walk away from that. I've tried my best here. And kind of going through COVID, that was, uh, COVID was like just going through fire. I mean, it was so hard. I made decisions. I would wake up every day and tell my team, look, guys, this might be the political end of us, but I'm not here for the politics. The job isn't about me. It's it's a lot bigger than ourselves, especially in this moment of of the pandemic. And we're going to make the best decisions that we can for the date. And I'm going to be super transparent about it. And when someone asks me a question I don't know, I'm going to say, I don't know, but I'm going to get to the answer. When someone asks me a question that I feel confident about, we're going to go right at it. But we're never going to back away from a question because transparency, that's the foremost responsibility of government. I really believe that. So what was your theory as to why we got Trump in 2016 to begin with? Former President Trump tapped into the anger that a lot of us Americans felt. We were angry that we felt marginalized as individuals. We felt angry that it was a big government solution as opposed to having kind of a non-politician step up, that, that someone that had understood Main Street, had some financial success, and uh, a little bit different. And that's what America said. We just want something a little bit different. Enough with this establishment stuff because that's not getting us anywhere. And former President Trump really tapped in to that frustration with individuals. He's not the most conservative on many issues, frankly, but he tapped into a conservative base that just felt marginalized. And 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 rightly so. And he won, you know, handily with that. And it really, he brought up voters that folks had never, that hadn't voted in years or hadn't felt like they were heard. And so people felt like, well, you know, I didn't get my two minutes with, with former President Trump, but boy, and, and I might not agree with every position he has, but he's got the same fire that I'm feeling inside. And that's actually an empathetic connection that he made with folks. I don't know if he was doing it intentionally or not. I think he does it in his own way, but he, in a way, that's an empathetic connection. And as leaders, you want to have an empathetic connection with your voter base. Now, over time, I think that the, the value of that empathetic connection wore away because he, was, he actually spent so much time with his own fights on issues that he would step on his wins. Yeah. Right? He, he, former President Trump did some remarkable things with regulatory reform in this country, and his tax cuts I was very supportive of. There's a lot of things he did that were very, very good, but they never got the credit. And in some ways, he never let them get the credit because he was all, always about the fight. And that's why come 2020, people said, look, we, we just want to get away from the fight first, right? We want to be America first, not America only, but America first. We want fighter, but we know we have to move the ball forward. We can't just have folks in Washington just talking and yelling at each other. And I think that's ultimately why I supported former President Trump in 2020. But that's why Biden ultimately won, because people were banking on those his relationships over the years to work across the aisle. And that's why his poll numbers have gone from 60% approval to 35%, because he's not meeting the expectations of those who supported him in the first place. So before we finish, Governor, I, I wanted to uh, tell people and get your response to an aspect of your personal background that I think may surprise some. We've talked about this before when we first met. Uh, you are, in some sense, uh, Central American. <laughs> 
not a middle American, a, a Central American, because your uh, father's, I think it's your paternal grandmother, to be specific, was born in El Salvador. I think people would be surprised to learn yeah, that so, the governor of New Hampshire traces his ancestry. So tell us a little bit about how that happened. Well, sort of. It's uh, That's not completely right. So she was born, my, my grandmother was born in Greece. My grandfather, my paternal grandfather uh -huh. was born in Jerusalem. Uh, their families emigrated over to Central America when they were younger. Uh, they lived in El Salvador and Costa Rica and, and, and Mexico for a while. I think that's where my grandparents uh -huh. ultimately were married in, in, in Mexico. Then they moved to New York. My, my father grew up in a Spanish-speaking held in Queens um, in New York. And then uh, he ultimately came up to New England when he went to MIT. And, and my mom was a full Irish born in, you know, uh, South, uh, South Boston, uh, down in Brockton, Massachusetts. So uh, I'm half Irish, and that's kind of where you get kind of my paler look, if you will. Uh, but the half of my family <laughs> is, is Greek and, and Lebanese. And, uh, and uh, they emigrated all over to Central America uh, earlier in the, in the 20th century. So, um, I'm, you know, there's the American story for you, right? I mean, a little bit of everything from all over the world, emigrating from all different other parts of the world. And uh, you throw it into a, a shaker, mix it up, and comes Chris Sununu. <laughs> I, I have read that your father, your father was born in Havana. Is that correct? Yeah. So my, my grandfather was an importer-exporter. Um, and he was happened to be on assignment, if you will, for a few months in Havana at the time. And that's kind of, it's almost a coincidence, but that's where my father was born, technically in Havana. But he was very, my grandfather was a very international guy. He lived in Lebanon and Jerusalem and France and the Middle East and and uh, in, in Central America. He worked a lot in, in out of Cuba. He, I think he was at the time selling American movies uh, to the uh, Cuban cinemas. <laughs> I think you'd get in a lot of trouble for selling American movies in Havana right now, but uh, if, if, I'm sure people, I'm sure the people in Cuba would like to have a few. Yeah, it depends. Uh, I guess it depends. What well, movies. Governor. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, Governor, uh, as I said, you're hard to categorize, and uh, not only in terms of this extraordinarily um, diverse personal background, but uh, in addition, in terms of your uh, really nuanced politics. Uh, and uh, you're going to be uh, a person to watch as the as the days and weeks uh, roll by in this political year and probably beyond. So I want to thank you again for being on the podcast with us. No, thank you. I really appreciate it, Chuck. This this has been great. And, you know, again, it's it's helpful for me, to be honest. When you ask questions, I'm like, oh, well, that's an interesting question. That's what's on their mind. I, I try to listen to these questions as much as possible just because that usually tells me what other folks' priorities are and what's on their mind. It isn't just what's in my head, to be sure, even though I'm a governor. Uh, you know, that's why we always say we got to listen, because if someone's asking the governor a question, it probably means it's it's pretty important. So I just really appreciate the opportunity. 